0: Today's reading is Ephesians three fourteen through 21. When I think of all this, I fall to my knees and pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and on earth. I pray that from his glorious, unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him, that comes from God. Now all glory to God, who is able, through his mighty power at work within us, to accomplish infinitely more than we ask or think. Glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations, forever and ever. Amen.
1: The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I once had a dental hygienist Who every time I went to see my dentist, she would say in her crackling old lady voice, floss the ones you want to keep. Floss the ones you want to keep. And I was like, and it dawned on me after a while what she was saying. She was telling me the importance of flossing my teeth. But evidently she attached it to if you want to keep any teeth, then you better floss them. And that's always stuck with me. You know, not a lot sticks with me, but that has stuck with me. And it stuck with me because, in part because it reminds me that, that small practices repeated over time can make a big difference. And over the next ten Sundays, we'll be focusing on five practices that, if acted upon, can shape your life and mine in very positive ways. The five practices, I've mentioned to you, them to you two weeks ago. Start with prayer, read the Bible, live life together, share your table, and participate in God's mission. And the motivation for these practices is grounded in what's true of us as human beings. And it's this, that we are what we repeatedly do. We are what we repeatedly do. We all engage in repeated practices, from brushing our teeth to driving a car. And so many of them become like muscle memory that we don't even think about them anymore. And that's part of what it means to be human, is to engage in repeated practices. But these repeated actions, even though they may feel like muscle memory, those repeated practices shape our habits. Our habits end up shaping our character, and our character ends up shaping our desires, and our desires end up shaping ourselves in life. And that's, that's largely what it means to be human. So these five practices that I'm suggesting to you are a response to this question. What are the practices that can help us grow into maturity, into mastery of life as followers of Jesus, and in turn help us to sustain this beautiful risk of, of stepping into love and seeing where love takes us in 2017 and beyond. And I'm suggesting these five practices function like a trellis on a grapevine. That's why I love this image, this latest image we're using. It's a picture, it's a photo of, of vineyards. And we looked at John 15 two weeks ago where Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. And a trellis is used to uphold the the vines so that they are raised up off the ground and they can branch off and they can expose the leaves to the maximum sunlight, sunlight and produce the best grapes and the best wine. And in this case... This, these five practices are intended to provide structure so that we can deepen our lives in Christ and draw life from Jesus and in turn to have really fruitful and life-giving lives. And so that's what this is intended to do is so, that, so that in the end we might be more fruitful in our lives. We might be more life-giving to other people. So today we're starting with the first practice and it's to start with prayer and I'll be asking the question why, why start with prayer today, next week we'll be looking at how. So each, with each of the practices we're going to start with why and then we're going to go to how. So we'll spend two weeks, two Sundays on each one of the practices and I want to offer three answers to that why question this morning, just three answers to the why question. Uh, It's not intended to be exhaustive and it's not intended to be the final word, all right, and I'm not intending to try to answer every possible question that might be raised about prayer. I walked into my study, um, and I looked at the amount of books that I have collected on prayer over time. Um, I have five, over 5,000 books in my library. They're all cataloged, so that's why I know that number. And you say, you've got a real problem. <laughs> I'm going to be on the next uh, ish, uh, next. Uh, episode of Hoarders. Um, But I have probably 50 books on prayer. Um, I say, well, who needs 50 books on prayer? Well, because for me, prayer is probably one of the biggest challenges uh, in being a follower of Jesus. And I'm interested in learning what other people are are discovering and what they've seen, whether they're in church history or whether they're living today. Um, I, I gain from, from paying attention to them so I'm not going to answer all the questions and I know there are a ton of questions but hopefully by offering you three responses that maybe you'll find one of them that will be encouraging or helpful to you and uh, it will maybe spur you on to, to step into this practice as a follower of Jesus so here's my first answer to why I start with prayer and it's because Jesus is alive because Jesus is alive. I know last Sunday we celebrated Easter, and I don't know, what, you, uh, you know what, what happens for you after Easter, but I want to tell you that Jesus is still alive. All right? <laughs> he is still alive. We don't just celebrate him on Easter, <laughs> uh, but that he is still alive. And if Jesus hasn't been raised, then my question is, why do we bother with any of this? Seriously. If Jesus hasn't been raised, why do we bother with any of this? And that's the bottom line. It really is. Why bother being a Christian? Why bother with church? Why bother with prayer? Why bother with reading the Bible? Why bother with any of this if Jesus has not been raised? Paul raises that issue in 1 Corinthians 15. I'd like to invite you to turn there. If you don't have a Bible, there's one underneath your seat, page 961, 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Please do look at the text with me, whether it's through an app or through the Through an actual physical Bible Paul is talking about the resurrection of the Christians in Corinth and from that he then pulls in the resurrection of Jesus and about the proclamation they are making that Jesus has been raised and he comes up to an argument in verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 15 and that's where I pick up my reading And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. He's saying, if Christ has not been raised, then we've come to you with a message that is false and you've believed something that's false. He picks it up in verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, he's talking about death there, have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. I love the way that Paul is such a realist. He's saying, if Christ has not been raised, I have wasted my life. What I have done is an ultimate act of foolishness, and you all are fools for believing what I said. That's some pretty high-stakes language there. So if Christ has not been raised, then we are fools for believing it. And I will tell you this, that I have been the biggest fool for spending my entire life involved in this. And believe me, I've had thoughts about that more than once. That I'm staking my entire life not only as a, being a follower of Jesus based upon what I read from this, but also in being somebody who takes on this calling of pastor in which I'm trying to point people to Jesus who supposedly is alive because God raised him from the grave. And if that's not true, this has been one of the biggest acts of foolishness on my part. But if he has been raised... It's a game changer. It's a game changer. Paul says in Philippians 2, he talks about Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus giving himself over to obedience to the Father, being raised, and he doesn't just leave it with raised, it says that he has been exalted to the right hand of God. So that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord of all. You see, if Jesus has been raised, it's not just he defeated death, but this fact that he is ascended to the right hand of the Father, which means that he is Lord of all, which means that he is the world's true king, which means that he is the one who deserves rightful allegiance above everything else that human beings give allegiance to. Jobs, careers, money, possessions, relationships, status, all the things that human beings devote their entire lives to, give their allegiance to. It's a game changer. And so it makes sense to queue up under his authority. It makes sense to queue up his, under his leadership with believing allegiance. And this is where prayer comes in. Because prayer is a means to be attentive to God. Prayer is a means to be attentive to God. You see, it makes sense that, that the one that you're queuing up under, if he is truly the lord of all if he is the world's true king it makes sense to queue up under him and to pay attention to him to be attentive to him right i mean if you want to stay employed don't you typically try to be attentive to your employer to what that employer wants even if you don't like it you still know that if you're going to eat and pay your mortgage or pay your rent you've got to queue up under your employer you've got to be attentive to that person if Jesus is Lord of all, then it makes sense that we would be attentive to him, and prayer is a means of being attentive to God. Eugene Peterson says this, Prayer is the practice of shifting preoccupation away from yourself towards attentiveness and responsiveness to God. It is a deliberate walking away from a me-centered way of life to a Christ-centered way of life. It's the words that Jesus says when he's in the garden and he says, in the midst of facing the, 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 his looming death, he says, Not my will, but yours be done. And prayer weds what we know of God to our responsiveness to God. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 3. You're just going to have you jump around to a few texts, but I hope you don't mind. Ephesians 3. It's further to, your, to the right in your Bible. Take a right-hand turn. Um, in Ephesians 3, Paul is picking up and he's praying for these these Christians at Ephesus and in verse 14 he says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, so it's what, what we know about God, here is, here is a God who is rich He has resources for us that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, and he goes on to talk about that. But it's it's our responsiveness to God comes out of what we know about God. And if we believe that he is full of resources, then we come to him and we pray in accordance with those resources, just as Paul does there. So prayer is the place where God and humans meet. He speaks to us, we listen, we speak to him, he listens, and there's this two-way process of speaking and listening that goes on. And this two-way process is made possible, and it makes sense to practice because Jesus has been raised, he's alive. Why talk to someone if they're not alive, right? But if he is alive, then it makes sense that we can have this relationship, Jesus' resurrection tells us that God is active and he's present and he's involved in human history and he's involved in our lives. That's the good news of the resurrection that goes beyond Easter Sunday. So that's my first answer, because Jesus is alive. My second answer is because we're Easter people. Why start with prayer? Because we're Easter people. In 1 Corinthians 15, 20, you don't need to turn there, uh, Paul says that Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of God's redemption the first fruits of God's redemption. What are the first fruits? Well, the first fruits are the first fruit that comes for the harvest that then follows. It's the start of something that is going to be even bigger. And in this case, he's, Paul is talking about Jesus' resurrection being the start of something that would extend beyond the empty tomb in Jerusalem in the first century. And what is that thing? It's the new creation. Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new creation project. We didn't really get a chance to say that last week. It only, I think it might have just got mentioned if you were here for Easter. But that's a really, really key point. Think about it. Why is it that we gather on Sundays? Why is the Christian church gathered on Sundays for centuries? Well, the answer that most of us give is because Jesus was raised on Sunday. And that's true. In part. But the real answer goes back even further to Genesis chapter 1. Because God's creation project started on Sunday. It started on Sunday. And Jesus was raised on Sunday to signify that God's new creation project was beginning. God was starting again, He was starting his new creation project, with the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus' resurrection signaled that God was active and doing something fresh in the world. And that's the new creation. It has begun in Jesus' resurrection. Easter is the beginning of God making all things new. That's what the final, some of the final words of Jesus in, in Revelation one five. He says, behold, I'm making all things new. So to be in Christ is to be Easter people. That's our identity. We are Easter people. And God has invited us to partner with him in his new creation project. He's invited us to partner with him in this new creation project that's been launched in Jesus' resurrection. And prayer is a way that we practice attentiveness so that we can become involved in God's new creation project. Think about it. If new creation has been launched, if God is active in this world and he's launched something in in Jesus' resurrection, doesn't it make sense that we would want to be attentive to what it is he's doing in the world? So prayer is a means of, of asking God and paying attention to who is it that you've called me to love? Who is it that you've called me to be involved in? How might I love this person as I'm involved in a conversation with him or her repeatedly at work and I'm listening to them and I'm sensing that they're drawn to me and they want to share their life with me see that's where prayer comes in where you're asking God how is it that you want to use me in loving people and sharing my life my resources my time not being so busy that I can't pay attention to the people in whom your spirit might be working it's about partnering with God and bringing flourishing to the world in a variety of ways. Like we just heard up here where, where these men have collaborated and, and they're doing a project to point to something that's bigger than just us. To point to, to something about here is a way that God's new creation is breaking into the world in a cre- in, through creativity, through beauty, through art. See, that's, that's all part of this whole new creation that's possible. It's bringing an awareness of Jesus' life and love that is possible for people around us. It's the term Wendell Berry uses in his poem, The Mad Farmer, practice resurrection. I love that. You get up every morning, what are you supposed to be doing? You're supposed to be practicing resurrection. What does that look like today to practice resurrection, to practice being Easter people and bringing resurrection life to people? So the first answer I've given to you to why start with prayer is because Jesus is alive. The second is because we're Easter people, and the final one that, are off, that I will offer is because there are abundant resources in Christ. Turn to Ephesians. Back to if you if you didn't turn, you're in Ephesians chapter three, verses fourteen to sixteen. Uh, and just I just want to read this slowly where Paul is praying. He says, "For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named." that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. He begins with the resources, and then he talks about this, this, this response of trust that they might have, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that your roots might grow down in believing allegiance. He says that you being rooted and grounded in love, love of Christ and love for Christ, verse 18, that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. He's praying that they may experience God's love and that as a result of that, there might be a, a maturity and a fullness of life that comes as a result of that. But it begins for Paul with God's abundant resources. It begins with God's abundant resources and the hence my third answer. Eugene Peterson, in his book, Practice Resurrection, tells a story that I want to read to you. I thought it was just fantastic. Eugene Peterson was a pastor. He's an author. He writes, two friends, Fred and Cheryl, went to Haiti 25 years ago to pick up a child they had adopted. Addie was five years old. Her parents had been killed in a traffic accident that left her without a family. As she walked across the tarmac to board the plane, the tiny orphan reached up and slipped her hands into the hands of her new parents, whom she had just met. Later, they told us this birth moment, of this birth moment, how the innocent, fearless trust expressed in that physical act of grasping their hands seemed almost as miraculous as the times their two sons slipped out of the birth canal 15 and 13 years earlier. That evening, back home in Arizona, they sat down to their first supper together with their new daughter. There was a platter of pork chops and a bowl of mashed potatoes on the table. After the first serving, the two teenage boys kept refilling their plates. Soon the pork chops had disappeared and the potatoes were gone. Addie had never seen so much food on one table in her whole life, and she had never seen so much food disappear so fast. Her eyes were big as she watched her new brothers, Thatcher and Graham, satisfy the ravenous teenage appetites. Fred and Cheryl noticed that Addie had become very quiet and realized that something was wrong. Agitation, bewilderment, insecurity. Cheryl guessed that it was a disappearing food. She suspected that because Addie had grown up hungry, when food was gone from the table, she might be thinking that it would be a day or more before there was more to eat. Cheryl had guessed right. She took Addie's hand and led her to the bread drawer and pulled it out, showing her a backup of three loaves. She took her to the refrigerator, opened the door, and showed her the bottles of milk and orange juice, the fresh vegetables, jars of jelly and jam and peanut butter, a carton of eggs, and a package of bacon. She took her to the pantry with its bins of potatoes, onions, and squash, and the shelves of canned goods, tomatoes, and peaches, and pickles. She opened the freezer and showed Addie three or four chickens, a few packages of fish, and two cartons of ice cream. All the time she was reassuring Addie there was lots of food in the house, that no matter how much Thatcher and Graham ate and how fast they ate it, there was a lot more where that came from. She would never go hungry again. Cheryl didn't just tell her that she would never go hungry again. She showed her what was in those drawers and behind those doors, named the meats and vegetables, placed them in her hands. It was enough. Food was there, whether she could see it or not. Her brothers were no longer rivals at the table. She was home. She would never go hungry again. My wife and I were told that story 25 years ago, ever since. Whenever I read and pray this prayer of Paul's that I just read to you, I think of Cheryl gently leading Addie by the hand through a food tour of the kitchen and pantry, reassuring her of the boundless riches and all the fullness inherent in the household in which she now lives. Beautiful story. And prayer is the practice of those who are aware of the presence of the kingdom of love, who are aware of the presence of the abundant resources that are found in Christ. So I want to finish with a question that some of you may have asked from the very start, and that is, does this really matter? Does prayer really matter? Just very briefly. Honestly, I can go through an entire day with little to no communication with God, and things do not spiral out of control. I can go through an entire day, just in case you're just wondering, what did he just say? I can go through an entire day with little to no communication to God and I do not get zapped. I do not experience a debilitating disease. I do not experience the wrath of God. My guess is I may not be the only person who has done that. And if we're being honest right now with this question behind me, I'll ask another question. Do you ever wonder if prayer is some form of self-talk? Similar to some therapeutic technique you might receive? Have you ever wondered that, honestly? So what do you do with this question? Does prayer really matter? Well, my response to does prayer really matter, and you need to think of your own response, but my prayer, my answer... My response to this question, does prayer really matter, is to remind myself that it mattered to Jesus. The Son of God, who was present at creation, who spoke worlds into existence and sustained them, sustains them with the word of His power. Prayer mattered to Jesus. Jesus was compelled to pray. And He prayed as if it mattered. He prayed... as if it made a difference. As if the time spent dedicated to prayer was as important as the time that was spent dedicated to people. And even in the midst of life's mysteries, like the tragic death of a vibrant 19-year-old man whose body was right down here in front of me as I spoke yesterday, we may never get the answers to the why questions that we pose to God. But as I follow Jesus in the Gospels and I see how he responds at the grave of his friend Lazarus to the people who brought their paralyzed friends to him, to moms and dads who thrust their sick and dying children at him, to grieving people, in all of this Jesus gives me a visible sign of how the Father must hear our own prayers in this moment. He says, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And Philip Yancey says, We know how God feels because Jesus gave us a face, one sometimes streaked with tears. And so I'm invited and you're invited into this relationship that Jesus had and has with his Father through prayer. Thanks be to God.